Now, what we looked at so far in chapter 23 is kind of what I was calling the negative reforms, that is the canceling of paganism. So, there's this sort of nation-wide, nation of Judah-wide purging of paganism that takes place, and it even extends up into the north. Of course, the northern kingdom's long gone, but uh, insofar as there's a remnant of, of Israelites left behind, um, up goes uh, Judah and up goes Josiah to cleanse and purge that area as well. This all culminates with the slaughter of some of the pagan priests that we saw at the conclusion of the previous section, verse 20, where Josiah sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned human bones on them. Again, that defiles it as a worship site, even a pagan worship site. And then he returned to Jerusalem. Now we switch gears into the positive reforms of Josiah, so to speak. A shorter list to be sure, but these are some of the things that he did and established. So, verse 21, And the king commanded all the people, Keep the Passover of the Lord your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant. Of course, you have the rediscovery of the book of the covenant when Josiah is going about the repairs of the temple. So just hearkening back to that for a moment, within the column of positive reforms, we have Josiah repairing the temple, a parallel with both Hezekiah and Josiah. They're repairing the temple. Uh, and they discover the book of the law, and in the book of the law, this central, central practice, Old Testament sacrament, if you will, the Passover. Of course, it is, how can we, how can we forget that when our Lord Jesus finally comes to us, the true King, he takes the Passover and transforms it into its fullest expression as the Lord's Supper. He is our true Passover lamb. We eat his flesh. The blood goes not on the doorway of our homes, but on the doorway of our bodies, marking us as those redeemed by Christ the crucified, spared from the angel of death. And so we see here, um, Josiah restores the Passover. Jesus makes a new Passover, a new covenant in his flesh and blood in the context of this Passover meal. So keep the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in this book of the covenant. Verse 22, For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel, or the kings of Judah. But in the eighteenth year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. Okay, now this seems to be, as the study note points out, this, like, what is this no such Passover? Doesn't mean that there were no Passovers ever. That would obviously be a mistake. But here, as the study note says, the Hebrew seems to qualify the event as a remarkable celebration, not simply as the only Passover celebrated the past 783 years. And then Passover was also celebrated under Hezekiah. Of course, we have the church father Ambrose. My sons, think before you act. And when you have thought long, then do what you consider right. Josiah celebrated the Lord's Passover when he was 18 years old, as no one had done it before him. As then in zeal he was superior to those who went before him, 
so do you, my sons, show zeal for God. What a beautiful statement. What beautiful encouragement. That is indeed exactly how we should read this. Instead of doing bare minimum Christianity, uh, how about full maximum Christianity? How about bringing back the fullness and the richness? So that's, um, that's Josiah's program. In fact, he holds a Passover celebration that really transcends all others. Um, going all the way back to the original as God was leading his people out of Egypt and into the promised land. Okay, any thoughts, any questions on that? Are we good to move on? All right. Verse 24. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. So again, I, in view here is this positive. Not only does he just cancel the paganism, but in its place he puts forth the things of the Lord, the things of the book. You know, this is, this is very much akin to our Lord's teaching. Um, remember the, the very short story he tells of, um, of, the, of the demon who is possessed and, the, and the, the house is swept clean, but then seven more come in after? Yeah. You can't, have a, you can't have an empty house. There's no such thing. So you're going to have, you're going to have God or you're going to have the devils. That's what you're going to have. So Josiah very wisely does not simply just wipe out the paganism, but he sweeps the house clean and he puts in the things of God. God is resident here. And so that's, um, there's, there's no vacuum. There's no such thing as a spiritual vacuum. It's just God's there or Satan's there. Pastor? Yes, please. Uh, this verse that says there was no king like him before him, would that mean, would it, that also mean David and Solomon? He was a king more uh, diligent. We, which verse are you looking at in, in specific earlier or in this section? I. Uh, yeah, in this section. Um, where, where was it? <laughs> 25. 25. Before him, there was no king like oh, him. Oh, I see. Yes. And then there was no king afterwards. So it. Yeah, he, I mean, he's, that puts him, that puts him up there with David, to say the least. I don't, I don't know that it necessarily means he transcends or best David. It, you know, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I, David is just such the template. And my argument for why he probably doesn't is um, in all the New Testament literature, there are lots of references to David and the son of David. God's promise was to him as such. Josiah, if he factors explicitly at all, would do so in a very minor way. So I, I don't know. that An extensive argument could be had there, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, to take nothing away from the glory of Josiah or from the words on the page here. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting to me as I, as I walk through this, you know, when you think of the greatest kings of 
Israel, whether that's Israel or Judah, you probably think of David. To some degree, you think of Solomon, of course, his possible apostasy or the timeline of that maybe maybe casts a shadow on him. But then what do you have? Hezekiah and Josiah. Yeah, that's about, that's about it. Not to say that there aren't other kings who are okay, but those are the big ones. Those are the big ones. But isn't this kind of talking about the people at that time? Because they never saw any Passovers. Yeah, they certainly they certainly had not witnessed many Passovers. You know, it's hard to say. It's hard to say if they're among the faithful remnant, if there wasn't maybe some kind of private practice of the Passover. That I don't think that that's necessarily precluded here. Just um, just that Josiah does this on a national level. It's a it's a big deal. Oh, it's a big deal. Okay, so just picking back up then, um, at 25, before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. And again, I, you know, it's important for us to see what is this, what is this language of returning to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might. It's very reminiscent to what is the greatest of the commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as, your, as yourself. Excuse me. <coughs> so, you have this kind of, um, you know, Josiah is what we would call blameless. Is, is blameless sinless? No. But he's blameless. You might say that he's righteous. Righteous in the perfect sense? No, not righteous in the perfect sense, but in the sense of upright and good. So we can use these words without falling into absolutist categories. We can say that a person is good, or that a person is upright, or that a person is righteous, or that a person is blameless. doesn't mean sinless doesn't mean they don't need Jesus or, or the Messiah to save them. But we do have this other category, so we don't have to slump into these absolutes. And a verse like this bears that out. Um, did he absolutely keep the law? No. But did he keep it in such a way that he was thought to be blameless? Absolutely so. Absolutely so. So, um, I think just a great little statement there summarizing his faithfulness. And interestingly... Interestingly, verse 26, still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath. Okay. So Josiah, good though he was, you know, God doesn't, God doesn't, God operates in a way of justice, but not as if he's sitting there counting like, okay, are Josiah's merits worthy enough to outweigh the demerits of my people? No, I think that would be a mistake. But what we see here, too, is that Josiah is, nonetheless, a kind of insufficient mediator. It will only be Christ that causes God to turn away from the burning of his great wrath and have mercy on us. Uh, Josiah is not sufficient to be mediator. Christ is. So still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath, by which his anger was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocations with which Manasseh, okay, now you're talking about previous generations, had provoked him. How on earth can a sitting king blot out the iniquities of previous generations? 
There's only one sitting king who can do that, and that's that's our Jesus. So, um, going back to Manasseh, of course, you recall Manasseh back in chapter 21, and Manasseh is famous for being the anti-reformer. Hezekiah had gone about setting everything right, Manasseh comes and like practically overnight makes it all wrong again. We talked about the how long it took Hezekiah to reform things to the good, how short it of a time it took Manasseh to bring it all to naught. You can it's so much easier to defile and corrupt than it is to establish or create. All right, verse 27, And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight, as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, My name shall be there. I mean, this is, again, okay, so this is an example of the Lord withdrawing his gracious presence from his people because they have sinned against him so impenitently, so grievously, so chronically, that he finally says, fine, have it your way. Have it your way. Does that mean he loves them any less? No. Does that, I mean, in fact, he brings punishment upon them, no doubt, temporal punishment upon them, so that some, at least, might turn and repent and have eternal life with him, even though there's great temporal consequence of, to their sin. Um, but here we see that, you know, God does, in fact, there's sort of a, a limit to his patience, temporally speaking, and um, he's fed up with it. It goes generations deep, and it's finally time to uh, execute his judgment. Okay, nothing against, nothing against uh, Josiah, of course, because Josiah, insofar as it goes, is just fine. He's great. And that has some bearing on the next section. Verse 28, Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. King Josiah went to meet him, and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo as soon as he saw him. Well, a couple of comments. Of course, you have Assyria and Egypt continuing to be world superpowers, so you can already see the foreshadowing and the handwriting on the wall. Obviously, there's previous historical reference to these two as well. Megiddo, um, this, is the, this is the place that is come to be associated with Armageddon. Of course, here, Josiah, the faithful king, falls in Megiddo. Christ and Armageddon triumphs and conquers and finality. So we've got a minor play on those themes. And then if you look at the study note on verse 29, Josiah was able to carry out his reforms even in the former northern kingdom because for some time Assyria had lost control of Israel. In 612 BC, Assyria's capital, Nineveh, was destroyed by the Babylonians and the Medes. In the ensuing contest for regional control, Pharaoh Necho II marched through Israel to join surviving Assyrian forces against the rising power of Babylon. 
The Allied army was defeated at Carchemish on the upper Euphrates in 605 BC. In an attempt to block the Egyptian advance through Israel, Josiah opposed Necho at Megiddo, one of the most strategic passes through the Carmel Ridge. Of course, there's a reference to the map on page 615, if that's your thing. Josiah lost his life in the battle. All right, a nice summary of what's going on there geopolitically. Of course, Assyria had been the power. They were the power that swept up the ten northern nations, supplanted other peoples in that, in that area. Um, and so then, as their power wanes, another world power, Egypt, comes up to ally itself with Assyria over and against the rising superpower Babylon. Babylon wins. Spelling doom then for Judah as well. Okay, and of course Judah loses its king. Um, I suppose that there's a little bit of irony there. Because Josiah in going to battle the king of Egypt, you know, he ends up he ends up being sort of an unwitting ally of Babylon who then conquers Judah, if you're following the irony of the the way it all works out. All right, well, we've got this quote here from an, the church father, Aphrahat, 4th century guy. I only know his name in connection with 2 Kings. I don't think I've ever seen it beyond that. But here's his commentary on this. Josiah also was persecuted as Jesus was persecuted. Josiah was persecuted and Pharaoh the lame slew him. And Jesus was persecuted and the people that were made lame by their sins slew him. Josiah cleansed the land of Israel from uncleanness, and Jesus cleansed and caused to pass away uncleanness from all the earth. Nice, beautiful statement and kind of indicative of the way that the church fathers read the Old Testament scriptures. They all do, in fact, testify of Christ. All right. Well, I think we left off in having read maybe the first half of verse 30. So let's pick back up there. And his servants carried him. Oh, no, we didn't. We had just left off at 30. So he is killed by Necho at Megiddo. Verse 30. And his servants carried him dead in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in his father's place. All right, thus, thus ends the life of Josiah. In your study note on chapter 23, this is sort of the summary study note of verses 28 through 30. It's worth me reading King Josiah dies due to conflicts over the rising regional power of Babylon. Yet the Lord fulfills his word to Josiah by gathering him to the tombs of the kings of Judah. When good people meet a tragic end, such as faithful soldiers or officers who fall in the line of duty, do not assume that they or their families are being punished by the Lord or that he has forsaken them. Instead, honor the noble who fall too soon in your eyes, 
offering thanks to God for their noble service. Jesus too met an early end to our notions, but his death was purposefully timed by God for our salvation. And then this beautiful hymn, Lord, let at last thine angels come to Abram's bosom bear me home that I may die unfearing and in its narrow chamber keep my body safe in peaceful sleep until thy reappearing and then from death awaken me that these mine eyes with joy may see O Son of God, thy glorious face my Savior and my fount of grace. Lord Jesus Christ, my prayer attend, my prayer attend, and I will praise thee without end. Ah, just a beautiful statement. Just love it all the way around. I don't even want to add anything to it. I think it's gorgeous. I mean, in fact, in fact, the truth is from heaven's vantage point, an early death sometimes might be a mercy. <laughs> going to sweep you up and sweep you home and bring you safely there. It's not always the case. It's not always the case. And the scriptures do warn that wickedness brings about an earthly, a short earthly life. Um, that's not, there are exceptions to that as well, of course. And so there are exceptions um, to the other, to the other. Some short lives lived here on earth are nonetheless very blessed lives, and God is taking them home. So, a, a gorgeous section in meditation on uh, the death of a faithful king um, who is second only to David or maybe even equal or maybe even transcends him. Up for debate. Okay, how about his son, Jehoahaz? How do we think this is going to go? Let's find out. Yeah, you may. Um, do we have a microphone running around? Sorry, Barry. Uh, right up here. Do we? Have, I'm not sure we see this in Kings, but are we given any indication that Josiah's going out to meet Pharaoh was uh, any kind of like strategic blunder or anything like that? Was this maybe a necessary mm. thing that he mm. went to do, or do you have any sense for that? Um, I don't, is the short answer. I, obviously, Chronicles would be a place where you could check and maybe it would fill in those details. Yeah, I don't know. Here in the text, it, there's just such little commentary given. The assumption would be that it's not really, we're, at least this author, right, in his theology that he's presenting, we're not to see a blunder or some sort of spiritual mishap or faux pas. Yeah, great question, though. If you, uh, if you happen to find an answer, let us know. <laughs> All right, let's, uh, let's find out what happens with Josiah's son, Jehoahaz. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. It's not a lot of time. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. Okay, so here we have, um, you know, the study note points out too, no reason is given why the people chose Jehoahaz, who was two years younger than his brother. So th there's much detail here that would be interesting that we'd like to know that would connect the dots. But that's just not the point um, that this author has. He's, he's driving um, his own kind of agenda here, his own kind of theological purpose. 
All right, well, we see yet another king of Judah with his mother named. So we recall that type so frequently recurring here in 2 Kings. Verse 32, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. I don't, now, I don't think, I don't think Jehoahaz really, you know, you want to say like Hezekiah did all the reforms and then comes Manasseh and he ruins everything. I'm not sure that you would put Jehoahaz on the level of Manasseh in terms of, you know, wickedness and ruining everything, but you still nonetheless see the pattern repeat, don't you? Um, reformer, everything set right, going in the right way, ruined by the next guy that comes in. which can happen with pastors and congregations too. Which is why the strength of a congregation is never the pastor as such, but really the board of elders, the leaders, and the faithful people of the congregation who will attend voters' meetings, stand up, make wise decisions, and guide and govern the congregation in periods of transition. So that's my commendation to you all. Um, to be strong in the Lord, be, be knowledgeable in the scriptures, be faithful. Um, when it comes time to pass the baton, as that there always is in leadership roles, uh, you as the congregation, um, you make a wise choice. How, what, is, what is this congregation? What choice do they make? A poor choice. <laughs> a poor choice. Jehoahaz, he does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 32, middle of, according to all that his fathers had done. You glimpse here, I don't want to make too much of it, but you glimpse here the two lines, the two lineages of Scripture. The, the good generation and the evil generation. Um, not, not so much generation stacked horizontally the way we think of generations, but two generations vertically. The generation of the good, the generation of the evil. The sons of God and the daughters of men, if you will. Um, the righteous and the wicked, children of God and the brood of vipers. Brood of the viper. So yeah, he's with his fathers. That's a knock on the wicked kings of Judah and a knock on him. Verse 33, And Pharaoh Necho put him in bonds at Riblah in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. So obviously then the, this Pharaoh Necho is still up to no good. He's killed Josiah. He comes down. He um, captures and puts in bonds the next king. And then this is, this is basically turning Judah into a vassal state. <clears throat> Verse 34, and Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the place of Josiah, his father, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoahaz away, and he came to Egypt and died there. I mean, there's kind of a tragic irony there that the people who went from Egypt, now this king, their figurehead, returns to Egypt and dies there. So there's kind of some... At the time, it would not have been all that... At the time, none of this would have been very subtle foreshadowing. It might strike us as subtle, but Egypt coming in and controlling... Didn't we... Hey, how did this whole thing begin? With God setting us free from Egypt. What's Egypt doing? 
They just killed our king. They're, we're paying tribute to them. They set up their own puppet king. Who's ruling us now in the promised land? Egypt. I mean, these are not, if like, if you were alive during this time period, the, the ironies would not be lost upon you. It would not be subtle at all. You'd be thinking to yourself, oh goodness. I mean, if you're pious, who knows? If you're not pious, you're just thinking, well, and yet another pagan nation. This has nothing to do with anything. But if you're pious, you understand the scriptures, you understand the history of God's people. This is, there's no mistaking this. All right, well, Joaz is taken away. He dies in Egypt, verse 35. And Jehoiakim, formerly Eliakim, gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh. But he taxed the land to give the money according to the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and the gold of the people in the land. What happened when the people were going out of Egypt? Gold and silver of the people were given to the Israelites. Now what's happening? Being returned. Yeah. God is the God of Israel, but he's the God of all the nations, and he's the God of justice, and Israel, slash Judah, really properly speaking, has become so thoroughly paganized, God's looking at it going, all right, what I gave to you from, the, from Pharaoh in Egypt, now you're going to give right back. Deep, deep, bitter, brutal ironies. But you can see here, too, like the sense of God's personality, like very just, very thorough, very symmetrical, Sometimes um, he, he's very patient. The wheels of justice grind slowly but exceedingly fine. That's a fair statement of how God works in his justice. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. But just because he's slow to anger doesn't mean no anger. Ha! Slow to anger means it takes him a while to get there, and then once he does, it's definitive. Um, and, it's, and it's like, for any who have eyes to see, it's quite obvious and telling what the Lord does. Okay, so that's um, God. That's kind of this sad little saga. Let's see. Yeah, the study note on verse thirty-three. Halfway into it, Pharaoh deposed Josiah's son Jehoahaz, also called Shalom, in Jeremiah and put him in bonds. No doubt Necho feared that the people of the land had made Johaz king because he would follow his father's anti-Egyptian policy. It's different than being his father's faithfulness. <laughs> That's his father's anti-Egyptian policy. Um, thus, thus now you can see why it is that Necho wants him decapitated, so to speak. He wants to cut off that head and put in his new head, politically speaking. And then what about this name change? The Seno just says Necho changed the name of his appointee, Eliakim, to impress his vassal with his authority. For a similar action, um, tax the overlord also, uh, yeah, you can go see um, verse, yeah, chapter 24, 17. We'll come up on that for a similar action. I mean, who can, who can name someone? Who can change their name? God does. Basically, your father, <laughs> your father can change. He gave you your name, right? It's the authority to name belongs to the father. And so what is, what, I mean, what is the implication here? Complete authority. He's, this is the ancient way of saying, I'm your daddy. I just changed your name. You're going to rule according to my desire. You're going to be called what I told, tell you to be called. So he takes Eliakim and changes him to Jehoiakim. 
Yeah, and then he's a puppet king. The overlord, the puppet king, exacted tribute, which uh, he paid by taxing the people of the land. So, a summary statement, 23 verses 31 through 35. In three short months, Jehoahaz, can't even watch a television series in that time. In three short months, Jehoahaz is able to restore false worship in Judah and so overturn his father's reform. How easy to destroy and corrupt, how hard to set things right again. Isn't that true? Yeah. Okay, any thoughts on that section? Any questions or anything come to your mind that I missed? We will just keep rolling along then. Let's see how Jehoiakim does. Any guesses? You have a pretty good statistic probability of just saying bad. All right, verse 36, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. Yeah, and, you know, like, reigned, you know, not so much, yeah, well, he's a puppy king. His mother's name was Zebedah, the daughter of Pediah of Rumah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Big surprise. According to all that his father's had done. It's just a lot of fun to think typologically. Um, you've got the, the queen mother here, and the sin is blamed on the fathers. Uh, many of the church fathers thought that, um, I don't know, maybe they're right, who knows, but thought that sin in conception is passed on from the father. So that the, the mother, the female, is incapable of passing on sin. Even though she's sinful, she doesn't pass it on. It's passed on by the father. And um, obviously they've got lots of different proof texts for this. But this is one of the, the ways that they tied in um, the necessity of Jesus being born only of a mother and his subsequent sinlessness. It's not that Mary was sinless. It's that whatever sin was in her could not be passed on. And with the father removed, the hereditary sin would not be passed on, you see. And so Jesus could be truly born of Mary, flesh of our flesh, and be without sin. It's interesting to think along those terms in a, in a verse like this, seeing the typology where you have the queen mother, so to speak, and then, the, again, the wickedness of the child, the wickedness of, of King Jehoiakim, is attributed to his fathers, according to all that his fathers had done he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, verse uh, chapter 24, verse 1. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Oh, in passing, we saw Jeremiah, didn't we? We're seeing Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Nebuchadnezzar. That's going to remind us of Sunday school. We're thinking like, um, who? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Like this just gives us kind of the you know, the broad sweep very generally of where we are in the timeline and who's who in the zoo, how it all fits together. So yeah, here's a, here's a very famous name. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim became his servant three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. 
And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it. According to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Yeah, so look at this in the study note. In Judah's moment of weakness, all her neighbors exploited her. This was not simply politics, but part of God's judgment. Indeed, there's a sense in which, remember how the nations are cast out of the promised land? There's a sense in which the nations now reinvade. So we're seeing the punishment of Egypt, the punishment of the nations reinvading. God's having his, his symmetry and his way. Uh, today, the church commemorates St. Cyprian. And I believe it's one and the same here whose comment we have. Once again, in study note on chapter 24, verse 2, Cyprian. The adversary can do nothing against us except God shall have previously permitted it, so that all our fear and devotion and obedience may be turned towards God. Beautiful statement. If you didn't gather that on the first take, it's worth reading again and thinking deeply on. If God has so limited all evil, then we need only fear him, not the evil itself beautiful statement. The study note continues, Nebuchadnezzar was not at once in a position to deal personally and in full force with the rebellion. During this time, the Lord sent against Jehoiakim the Chaldean or Babylonian occupation troops stationed in neighboring Syria, Moab, and Ammon. Bands from these countries joined in harassing raids against Judean territory. All right, so the hand of the Lord, you know, you, what, what would this look like? What would this look like if you were living these times? You wake up in the morning, get out your iPhone, you find out that all these nations are attacking you, just think, huh, these are geopolitical circumstances. Just chance. Not at all. The hand of the Lord is behind all of this, isn't it? He's the Lord of the nations, and he's permitting and shaping and forming all things for the good of those who love him. And, you know, it's, it's true in our own times. I don't think you have to, I don't think we have to sit here and be like, uh oh, what's happening in the Middle East? I wonder if the Lord's aware. You know, <laughs> okay, yeah. Not only does he know, he's got it all well in hand and he's orchestrating it all for the good of those who love him. And so we can keep that in mind that um, even though we live in uncertain political times and times where there's wars and rumors of wars, we can take stock and take peace and rest, security in our Lord Jesus. And as Cyprian says, entrusting that all might is in his hands and even the extent to which evil can be evil is in his hands. We don't need to be concerned with it. We need only be concerned with him, our faithfulness to him, and uh, our, our fear, our reverence toward him, not toward anything else. So I think timely, very timely section. All right, where did I leave off? Did I finish verse 2? Yes. I think so. Verse 3, Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done. 
and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. Ooh. Loaded, loaded. We paid attention to this before, of course, because Manasseh is truly an antichrist. Christ fills the streets with blood in Revelation of the wicked. Here Manasseh fills the streets of the blood with the innocent, the good. So we have a compare-contrast there. Which is fascinating, because Jer- Jerusalem is, um, you know, Jesus laments that it kills the prophets. And here we see an episode of just that. So he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood shed, um, he had shed. And the Lord would not pardon. Is How did Manasseh... Is he king now? I didn't see where he... Oh, no, no, we're going back. Yes, thanks for that, Barry. Manasseh so upset the Lord that the Lord's still hot about it generations later. Yeah. And in in the Lord's way of reckoning, um, Jehoiakim, Jehoaz, they're just following Manasseh. Yeah. And you kind of remember a, a parallel with Jeroboam, the sin of Jeroboam. I mean, we must have heard about the sin of Jeroboam for several hundred years of history. Probably. Probably at least a couple. Something like that. I mean, there are certain figures and, and ways that they lead and govern. And I think, I think it's like microcosmic and it's kind of like they become an icon or a type of this wickedness. But they stick out in the Lord's mind. They stick out in the Lord's mind. They become, they become curses, cursed names. And so, uh, Clearly, clearly, um, Manasseh is among them. And so that's what this is referring to. All right, verse 5. Now the rest of the deeds of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? You know, if Manasseh hadn't undone the reforms of Hezekiah, what could have been? What could have been? I mean, it was already too late, arguably, by the time Josiah died. Um, the Lord had already like, signed that bill, so to speak. But what if, um, I mean, what if the people had, had repented and been faithful to the covenant? Would any of this have come upon them? That's a fascinating question. Yeah, I mean, you kind of go back to Jeroboam too. You see, like, have, had Jeroboam not led them into national apostasy, what could have been? Could have been. So that's why those names stick out too. Is and they really stick out as antichrists, don't they? Because Christ means anointed one. The kings are anointed ones. They're messiahs, literally in the Hebrew. And so, um, yeah, these are anti-messiahs, antichrists, in antithesis to who who our Lord Jesus is. Okay, verse 6 of chapter 24. So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiakim, his son, reigned in his place. There's a little lapse in creativity there when it came to naming people. Verse 7, And the king of Egypt did not come again out of his land, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. 
Let me just see here if there's anything that stands out. Yeah, interestingly, the note on verse 37 tells us about Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah describes in greater detail the evil that Jehoiakim did in the sight of the Lord. So this is the time where Jeremiah is prophesying. And we get a sense, we know from Jeremiah's uh, book, what's going on is even though God has decreed, like this is the end of Judah, repent, like this, you know, this is it. Um, and has sent Jeremiah and others to proclaim this message. Ezekiel, Jeremiah and Ezekiel definitely stand out. Um, Daniel to some degree, and the, well, to a lesser degree, Daniel, much lesser degree. But Ezekiel and Jeremiah for sure. And they're, they're crying out like, hey, this judgment is coming. Repent, repent, repent. And what are the other prophets doing? What are the, in fact, what are the vast majority of prophets doing? Telling the people, it's good news. Everything's fine. The Lord is love. He would never do this. He's been putting up with this for hundreds of years. So keep putting up. Just keep offering your sacrifices and, you know, buy them off. Buy them off. And uh, everything's going to be good. It's well. It's well with everyone. I think the famous uh, false prophet that, if memory serves, that Jeremiah names is like sort of his arch nemesis, Bashar. Bashar's this guy. Yeah, he's like, he's this guy who's like, hey, the only thing that's bad is bad news. So, Jeremiah, the only thing we can't tolerate is your intolerance. Into the stocks you go. Yeah, so, so, anybody who's preaching bad news, they're, they're in trouble. Um, as long as you preach good news, you're good. That was the wickedness of the time. That was the wickedness of the time. Remarkable, isn't it? Okay, um, I think we left off at verse 8. Jehoiakim reigns in Judah. So this is the third then since Josiah. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. Hmm. Nehushtan, wasn't that the name that they gave for the um, for the bronze serpent of Moses that they were all worshiping? That I think Hezekiah had to destroy. I'm going to have to look up at that. That Nehushta just made me think. I wonder if that's the case. I wonder if she's named after that. Anyway, I'll have to look up. I'll have to look that up after class. But that's um, it's interesting. Okay, well, let's not lose the forest for the trees here. Uh, Jehoiakim, it does not go well with him either. And then, lo and behold, Jerusalem is captured. Okay, verse ten at. That time the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. 
The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign, and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king's house, and cut in pieces all the vessels of the gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon king of Israel had made, as the Lord had foretold. So again, the Lord foretold this. This is no surprise. Nor is God somehow overpowered. He said, look, I'm going to allow this thing's going to come. I'm going to allow this to befall you all. My, that, my house, my temple is a place of my grace and mercy for you. That's going to be taken away because you've rejected it. You filled it with idols. And this reference, you know, I don't know what specifics here are in mind. Maybe you could dig around and find some answers. I'm sure there's going to always be a degree of uncertainty. But the reference here to Solomon means that the temple is now facing a desecration and destruction that it hasn't faced all these years up to this point. So this is really kind of a remarkable statement that, um, you know, it's a, it's a prefigure of, of the temple being utterly and completely destroyed. Verse 14, he carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives. Yeah, he would have left only the poor behind. And all the craftsmen and the smiths, none remained except yeah, the poorest people of the land. There it is. Well, let's finish this section, then we'll go back and do just a couple minutes of commentary. And he carried away Jehoiakim to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made uh, Mataniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. So again, this idea of changing the name, you're my, you're my son, you're my underling. I'm the boss of you. That's what's going on here. All right. So let's, let's just get a couple comments here on um, verse 13, the study note there, the final sad episode uh, this final sad episode, the destruction of the temple, also happened according to the Lord's purposes. And here the church father Ambrose, it was far better to preserve souls than gold for the Lord. For he who sent the apostles without gold also brought together the churches without gold. The church has gold not to store up, but to lay out and to spend on those who need. Is it not much better that the priests should melt it down for the sustenance of the poor if other supplies fail than that a sacrilegious enemy should carry it off and defile it? Would not the Lord himself say, Why did you suffer so many needy to die of hunger? Surely you had gold. You should have given them sustenance. Why are so many captives brought on the slave market? And why are so many unredeemed left to be slain by the enemy? It had been better to preserve the living vessels than the gold. To this, no, no answer could be given. For what would you say? I feared that the temple of God would need its ornaments. He would answer, the sacraments need not gold, nor are they proper to gold only, for they are not bought with gold. 
The glory of the sacraments is the redemption of captives. Truly they are precious vessels, for they redeem men from death. That indeed is the true treasure of the Lord, which effects what his blood effected. All right, so kind of a nice, a nice treatment there that, um, based on this text, that the church isn't the stuff. You know, is there, is there anything wrong with having stuff to the glory of the Lord and stuff to communicate the gospel? No. But if it's taken away, is that the essence of the church being taken away? No. The essence of the church is the mercy of God for sinners and resources poured out for the good of man. Um, again, the, the underlying idea is that God doesn't need any of it. He has the whole world. He has the whole cosmos. God isn't like, oh no, what happened to my gold? Oh dear, how will I ever get it back? Uh, no, that's not his concern in the least. Okay, so a nice enough statement there. Um, we've seen Jeremiah running around. We've got um, the prophet Ezekiel here mentioned in study note 14, um, where it talks about um, none remained except the poorest people of the land. And here the note, the very end of the note on 14, among these uh, or the captives taken away. Yeah, I'm sorry. He wasn't one of the poor left behind. He was one of the captives taken away. The prophet Ezekiel. Okay, so Ezekiel is taken away at this time. Um, it's just interesting to put these prophets here in this timeline. All right, we have Zedekiah reigning in Judah, and then maybe that's it for today. We'll do 25. We'll finish the book uh, next week. And then if we've got time, we'll jump into Ezra and Nehemiah. That's next on the docket. So, verse 18. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. I mean, it would have been fine to rebel against the king of Babylon if they were faithful to the king of heaven. But you're kind of like doubly stupid here because you're going to rebel against the king of heaven in the first place. That's always a stupid move. And then you're going to rebel against Babylon, which is also a stupid move in this case. So... What comes next, you can see by the heading, Fall and Captivity of Judah. If there are any remaining comments or questions, happy to take those at this time. Otherwise, we'll just cut out a few minutes early today. Yep, seeing one in the back. Yeah. In Second Chronicles 35-22, the hmm? note, I think, kind of. What'd you find? <laughs> well... It just says um, about the Nekos saying he's from God, and it says in the note that this was from uh, the will of the true God concerning Judah. In effect, Josiah was opposing God in his attempt to defect the threatened judgment on the apostate nation. I'm, I'm sorry, so he was, Josiah was opposing God? That's what it says in this notes, but it in, says it just says it in Second Chronicles. In Second Chronicles, the, yeah. Good to know. That's interesting because that makes a parallel. Then remember Hezekiah in his last mo has this kind of unfaithful episode where they're like, "Hey, this is you know this is gonna 
happen to your sons and Hezekiah's attitude is like, well, as long as it's not going to happen to me, you're left with this bad taste in your mouth with Hezekiah. So then that's parallel. We've got a bad taste in our mouth left with Josiah too then. In Second Chronicles, of course. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Because in what sense then, I mean, what's the, what's the Holy Spirit's point? Even though that we've got different authors, we've, what's the Holy Spirit's point? As good as these men are, and remember kind of the, if not hyperbole, near hyperbole of he's the greatest king ever, Josiah. Um, what's the point? Not good enough. Not Jesus. Not the Messiah. And so that's, um, that, that's very fitting. That's a very interesting parallelism. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. Well, with that, let's leave off then for the day next week into chapter 25 and the conclusion of the text. The Lord be with you.